0: Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 20th of March, 2023. Just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK column news. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern exposure from north of the border, and Mark Anderson joining us from the United States. Uh, Well, David,
1: uh, on Friday, we were talking about Credit Suisse. Uh, Even more has happened over the weekend. So uh, let's start off there.
2: Yes, yeah, so we start off with the Financial Times and they're saying uh, the Swiss Central Bank offers Credit Suisse a liquidity backstop. Oh, that's good. Why ever would they need that? Well, the Financial Times goes on to explain, uh, well, the there investors are losing confidence in Credit Suisse and they are selling off their stock. And we see here Credit Suisse uh, one day share price change uh, down nearly 25%. That's pretty traumatic on on anyone's uh, uh, books. Uh, And we see all the other European banks, and the best of them is down 5%. So there are major sell-offs in stock price all across the European uh, financial sector, banking sector, which is evidence, of course, that the contagion has not stopped at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, Now, Reuters also report this story. Um, Credit Suisse intends to borrow $50 Uh, Swiss francs from the Swiss National Bank, and they go on to explain that uh, uh, The Swiss regulators have pledged liquidity lifeline to Credit Suisse in an unprecedented move by the central bank uh, After the flagship uh, Swiss lenders shares fell by as much as 30% on Wednesday Quote Credit Suisse is taking decisive action to preemptively This is an interesting definition of preemptive by the way after your share price falls 30%, but never mind. Preemptively strengthen its liquidity uh, by intending to exercise its option to borrow borrow from the Swiss National Bank up to 50 billion Swiss francs under a covered loan facility. It sounds so secure. Covered loan facility. As well as a short-term liquidity facility, which are fully collateral collateralized by high-quality assets. What could be better? What could be stronger? What could be more Swiss and uh, reliable? Well, it's not quite like that. So, uh, the next thing we're going to have a look at here is the condition of the Swiss National Bank that's making this 50 billion Swiss franc loan. Uh, we The most up-to-date accounts we've got from them are from 2022. Um, and it transpired that in 2022, they lost 132 billion. The Swiss National Bank lost 132.5 billion Swiss francs in 2022 alone. And uh, were are highlighting that they would be going to lose, going to make further losses uh, going forward. Uh, and that obviously... Begs the question, how much cash do they have? So, looking at their balance sheet, the most up to date one we could get was December 21. The total equity, so if you take all of the the, the liabilities off their assets and what's left for shareholders' equity in the Swiss National Bank, well, it was 204 billion, but you've got to subtract from that 132 billion, right? So, you end up with 72 billion. Of which they're going and that was that was in December. It will have got worse since then. Of which they're going to lend either most or perhaps all to Credit Suisse to sort them out. So it does beg the question who exactly is bailing out who and how much confidence we can have in all of this uh, banking shenanigans. And of course, we're not the only one to think this because
1: <laughs> it got worse from there. Well, indeed it did. So then uh, on, uh, well, yesterday, uh, the uh, coordinated central bank action was announced uh, to enhance provision of US dollar liquidity because US dollar liquidity is the problem here. Uh, So the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve and the Swiss National Bank Uh, announced a coordinated action to enhance the provision of liquidity via the standing US dollar liquidity swap line arrangements. Now, of course, there's no swap in this at all, despite what it says in them, or at least the swap that might be happening comes later if it ever comes at all. Uh, But basically, this is just more money printing. uh, And uh, so this was uh, consisting, uh, starting with the Bank of England, we have to say, because the Bank of England would be the first to implement this, uh, consisting of seven-day loans and using new standing U.S. dollar swap lines. As I say, no swaps in this uh, as such. But then uh, once that announcement was made, basically more money printing. Uh, Then, of course, we had the announcement, David, that UBS was riding to the rescue. Uh, And well, if uh, the Silicon Valley Bank was bought for a pound by HSBC, buying Credit Suisse for a couple of billion really is about the same kind of levels of idiocy, really. Well, yeah, so here
2: we've got Barnes reporting UBS rescues Credit Suisse with help from the Swiss National Bank, which, as we know, doesn't have all that much money. Um, so the report, UBS, down 5.5% at that point in the share price, has agreed to buy Credit Suisse uh, with help from the Swiss National Bank, down 1.1%. Um, under the terms of the merger agreement, all shareholders of Credit Suisse, who are currently, the share price is currently down 58%, will receive one share in UBS for every 22.48 shares in Credit Suisse, putting the deals price at around three billion Swiss francs. Now, if you delve into the state of Credit Suisse, they're currently saying the market capitalization is 7.33 billion Swiss francs. So if you're getting a company with a market capitalization of seven billion for three billion, that sounds like a good deal, at least on the surface uh, and the swiss government is providing nine billion swiss francs to backstop potential losses that ubs may take on the deal so you've got <laughs> you're paying three billion for a seven billion uh swiss franc company but the government's bailing you out to the tune of another nine how can you lose well perhaps it's even worse than that because when news of this deal hit the markets, the first thing that happened was UBS shares dropped 14%. So at least some people are not entirely convinced that this is a rock-solid deal. It makes you wonder how bad the uh, liabilities within Credit Suisse really are.
1: Uh, yeah, but we don't need to worry because UK banks are safe.
2: Well, this is it. So the BBC are assuring us uh, the UK banking system is safe, in scare quotes, after Credit Suisse Rescue. Um, <laughs> so this is this is wonderful. I, I mean, they're not actually saying it's safe and effective, but but they might as well be. So they're using the same language we saw during during the COVID rollout. It's all about safety. And it's okay because it's safe. So they're using exactly the same words, the same language, the same manipulations to try and alter how the public think. Because of course, if the public think that the UK banks are not safe that loss of confidence in its it it was nothing else actually happening that loss of confidence alone would doom the UK banks to a catastrophic run and um and, and an instant crisis so they're playing a confidence game they're playing essentially the reverse side of what they played during COVID which was all about installing fear now they're trying to use the same words to install confidence.
0: So, David, a question for you. The, the BBC indicating that this could, of course, have a massive damaging effect on the UK economy. Who are the regulators that have been working round the clock in order to sort this problem out?
2: Oh, that's the central banks, Brian. That's the Bank of England. And they're, they're experts. I mean, they, they know what they're doing. Um, I know what you're thinking. Well, they don't even know what causes inflation because they caused it and they didn't realise it was happening. And then they said it was transitory when it clearly wasn't. And and I can understand how you might doubt their wisdom after that performance. But apparently we're not meant to do that. Apparently they say it's safe and uh, the BBC can find nothing else to um, to raise an ob- as an objection.
1: Uh, well, it wasn't safe for $17 billion worth of bondholders uh, so here was uh, Reuters tweeting this out uh, yesterday uh, at 10:30 p.m. Credit Swiss write down, writes down seventeen billion dollars of bonds, uh, angering holders. Well, I'm sure it did anger them. Let's have a look at the statement from uh, the Swiss authorities. This is Finma, Finma, the uh, Swiss uh, uh, Financial Markets Supervisory Authority. Uh, they're the regulator in Switzerland, anyway, uh, and they said in their press release, in close coordination with Finma. Uh, the Swiss Confederation and the SNB, that's the Swiss National Bank, UBS will take over Credit Suisse in full. The extraordinary government support will trigger a complete write down of the nominal value of all AT1 shares of Credit Suisse in the amount of around uh, 16 billion Swiss francs is about $17 billion uh, and thus an increase in core capital. Now, AT1 bonds, for those who don't know, uh, these are also known as uh, contingent convertible bonds or for short, COCOs because they're a bit clownish. Uh, They were introduced after the financial crisis in 2007 as a way to transfer banking risk away from taxpayers and onto bondholders. Um, And uh, so they became very popular investment products uh, and money managers, banks, hedge funds, and so on, including Credit Suisse, marketed these to clients as a safe way to uh, seek alpha, to boost their yields and so on. Uh, Well, it hasn't turned out to be terribly safe in this instance. And I don't imagine that it's going to be safe uh, in the future. Uh, Who is it mainly exposed to this? Well, financial companies, uh, investment companies, hedge funds, banks themselves. So this potentially expands the contagion. Uh, Well, we wait to see what the outcome is going to be. Uh, But Mark, uh, let's bring you in at this point. Uh, And of course, between this and the previous SVB failure, uh, more and more headlines talking about the Federal Reserve Uh, and uh, their desire to see central bank digital currency.
3: Yeah, uh, since last week's report, guys, it hit me when we first talked about SVB last week, it hit me, is it possible that uh, this will be ginned up or at least taken advantage of, or heaven forbid it could have been planned that way all along, whatever it might be, to uh, instill a panic and the contagions in order to go towards a central bank digital currency system? Could the fix be in, is that possible? Only an open question. I didn't answer it, I'm merely asking it. Well, let's go through a few slides here and we'll explore it just a little bit. This one out of LifeSite News, Federal Reserve announces July 2023 launch of central bank digital currency infrastructure. So things appear to be moving along. A Subheadline. A financial expert has warned that FedNow, which is a new service, lays out the foundation for a central bank digital currency by centralizing all participating banks under the Federal Reserve. Now, moving on from there, uh, we'll read into it just a little. The Federal Reserve on Wednesday, this is a March 17 article, so Wednesday was March 15, announced a July 2023 launch of its Fed Now service which will enable all U.S. banks to offer instant payments 24-7 around the clock and will constitute the infrastructure of a central bank digital currency by linking each bank node directly to the Fed, according to financial experts. Fed Now will enable all the banks, any bank in the U.S., not just the big ones, to offer instantly available funds and real-time payments to their customers, explained Fed Chair Jerome Powell speaking before the House uh, Financial Services Committee on March 8th, that's formerly the House Banking Committee, it's now called Financial Services Committee, and going on from there. Uh, Picking out some things here, Uh, while the Federal Reserve Vice Chair, Lael Brenner, maintained during a House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services hearing in May that a central bank digital currency could take five years to launch due to needed security and design features, she added that FedNow will still serve many of the same functions as a central bank digital currency, according to the financial uh, news outlet. And moving on from there, financial advisor Joe Brown, uh, I was on the previous one, financial uh, advisor Joe Brown has warned that FedNow, that new service serves as the foundation or infrastructure for a central bank digital currency, bringing the country only a step away from deployment of such a currency, the, the digital one, Once the FedNow system is fully functioning, uh, Mr. Brown added this financial advisor, this infrastructure bypasses a lot of the need for the current banking infrastructure, which is the purpose of a central bank digital currency. And from there, we can keep going. Uh, Eventually, every single economic participant has an account directly with the Federal Reserve, the central bank, and then you don't need any of the decentralized nodes of the financial system the previously existing banks, the advisor, Mr. Brown, said, this transforms the purpose of the entire banking system. It would centralize everything under one roof. And the only thing that would be left to do would be to have everybody open an account directly with the Federal Reserve. That's pretty profound, even even just in theory, even just because it's conceivable. And uh, so it's also instructive to look at previous panics on this side of the pond uh the U.S. had uh, depressions in 1873 or panics, 1873, 1890, 1893. 1873 was considered the original Great Depression. Then, then came the uh, crash of 29. That became the actual Great Depression. 2008, a little bit less of a ripple in 2013. And then now the big question mark. These are all these panics many of which, not all, but many of which brought along major changes. The 1907 and 1893 panics were cited as the main rationales for creating the Federal Reserve System in the first place, I might add. And then this is, uh, uh, maybe at this point you guys would want to comment. I've got just a couple more slides. Anything you guys want to add?
1: David? Sorry. You're, we can't hear
3: well I can keep going
1: yeah go ahead We're not most... sure what happened there but anyway
3: yeah. this, is from, this is from the Yale School of Management um, and this goes along again with the same um, working theory I had in mind since last week is the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank the start of a banking panic because if if some of this could be geared toward justifying a central bank digital currency it has to be called a panic it has to be actually defined as that While Yale Insights says Silicon Valley Bank, a financial hub for tech startups, failed and was seized by regulators this week. Professor Andrew Metrick, who has studied past financial crises, explains how SBB's balance sheet got squeezed and how the risks of other banks experiencing similar losses could constrain the Fed's future decisions. He also warned that concern about bank solvency is a risk in its own right. And going on from there, Uh, It says in that article, the fundamental mismatch in the maturity of bank assets and liabilities, which is the very nature of banking itself, means that we are always at some risk. Banking panics have happened at regular intervals for hundreds of years. That's interesting. While the specific causes vary, the common theme is that panics occur when there's a legitimate concern about bank solvency. The FDIC recently reported that there are about 620 billion of unrealized losses currently at banks. 620 billion of unrealized losses. That's a lot. If interest rates continue to rise, then those asset values will fall even more. That's a consequence of higher rates. And if the economy goes into recession, that would be another blow to both sides of the balance sheet, excuse me. And liabilities are generally deposits and assets are like loans and long-term government bonds, things like that. But um, moving on from there, um, we also have Off Guardian, and now it's upping the ante. The Silicon Valley bank collapse, how financial crisis boosts the rise of central bank digital currencies. So now we see that connection being made between panics and crisis and um, contagions, and the actual creation, or at least the rationale for the creation of central bank digital currencies. And this off-guardian piece adds, does that mean the collapses were planned and engineered to the last detail? Maybe, maybe not. Certainly there was at least some warning for the people in the know. SVB CEO and CFOs, the, the bank's CEO and CFO that is, dumped a combined $4 billion in stock in the two weeks before the crash, and Bilderberger Peter Thiel's Founders Fund withdrew all of its funds from SBB the Thursday before the collapse, according to Off Guardian anyway. That is despite the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation finding that Silicon Valley Bank was a, quote, sound financial institution as late as March 9th, and that it only entered insolvency after investors caused a run. So there's some allegedly suspicious things going on here. Uh, There's also some things that concerned um, Israel and early withdrawals. I don't have that at my fingertips. And moving on in January this year, the World Economic Forum published a paper titled, Can Central Bank Digital Currencies Help Stabilize Global Financial Markets? And this article opined, it's clear what the sales pitch is going to be, but more than that, it's possible that bank runs will eventually or actually be encouraged in the future because they could increase the uptake of digital currency. According to a report from the Bank for International Settlements, emphasis added, uh, during a systemic banking crisis, transfers from bank deposits into central bank digital currencies would face lower transaction costs than those associated with cash withdrawals and would provide a safe haven destination in the form of the central bank. The lower costs of running to a central bank digital currency compared to cash imply that more depositors would quickly withdraw at a lower perceived probability of a system-wide bank bank solvency crisis they argue that since any hypothetical central bank digital currency will be more secure than traditional bank deposits and it's eas- and are easier to get than cash then people would opt to use it in the in the event of a run on the bank and and so on and so forth and uh, we're, we're summarizing here. This is about the end of this. Once the central bank digital currencies are out there, op- optional at first, of course, not not required, but optional. The central banks could theoretically increase the uptake by artificially engineering financial instability and causing regional banks to collapse. They won't. They won't make. They won't make it mandatory. And this goes into what David was saying. They'll just make it safe. All that matters is safe. And another report published in 2022 by the UK's House of Lords describes central bank digital currencies as the solution in search of a problem. And this article concludes, it looks like they just found their problem. So what I thought about since last week's report, at least there's some preliminary indication that other people are thinking this way and that it could be conceivably heading this direction.
1: Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Mark. Now, of course, uh, uh, David, uh, the question is, uh, are central banks safe? We've already suggested that the Swiss National Bank isn't in such a safe position. Uh, But in the meantime, the Federal Reserve, uh, if I remember rightly, for most of the last year was attempting to wind back its quantitative easing program. Uh, You're muted, David. Hold on. Try again. No, no. No, I'm
2: not muted here. Go ahead. Right. So can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Hello. Right. Okay. Um, So this is the graph we showed last week. So this is the the total assets of the Federal Reserve. It's a very interesting graph. It took them from from 1913 to 2009 to get to a billion. Um, They put an an extra billion on the balance sheet uh, instantaneously to cope with the 2008-2009 banking crisis, um, mortgage crisis. Another billion went on by 2011, another billion and a half up to 2015. And then they started to, it went flat, and then they started to actually take money out of the system. they were genuinely tightening. And of course what happened? They broke the banking system. We had the repo crisis of 2019, and they immediately reversed and started to create money again. We then had COVID, three trillion created essentially overnight, and then another two trillion to help recover from the effects of COVID. So so they were up at nearly nine trillion. and then they were genuinely tightening again albeit by only about $600 but they managed to do that. Um, How is that going now? Well, not well. So this is the chart from, well, actually last Wednesday. So how bad it is now is anybody's guess. But we see there about a year's worth of quantitative tightening where they took $600 billion off their balance sheet. Well, half of it's gone back on in a week since uh, the collapse of... um, uh, of Silicon Valley Bank, now um, um, Mark was describing there the the losses um, um, in the American banking system, right They mentioned six hundred and twenty billion um, and that's that's the figure that's shown here on this chart from the Financial Times. We showed this last week as well. but this is of course their losses on the security portfolio. this is government debt and mortgage-backed securities. This is the best assets they have that they've lost $620 billion on. And that did beg the question, if this is the good stuff, what's the rest like? Um, Well, we now know, because we've got uh, the Financial Times reporting here, the US banking system is more fragile than you'd think. They say academia isn't famous for churning out timely papers of practical value, but occasionally, a gem emerged. And they've got an, um, an abstract from a research paper from the University of Southern California, Northwest University, Columbia, Stanford, and NBER. Now, what does it say? It said, well, we analyze US banks' asset exposure um, to the recent rise in interest rates with implications financial, for financial stability. Now, remember, the, the Fed are tightening, they're putting up interest rates to fight inflation, and they're breaking things. Um, So they say the U.S. banking system's market value of assets is $2 trillion, not $620 billion, $2 trillion lower than suggested by their book value. Uh, Mark-to-market bank assets have declined by an average of 10% across all the banks, with the bottom fifth percentile experiencing a decline of 20%. Uh, And they say that 10% of banks have larger unrecognized losses than those in SVB. SVB was not the worst capitalised bank, and 10% of banks have got lower capitalization um, than Silicon Valley Bank. So it is much more uh, on the edge than you might think. $620 billion was the losses on the on their, uh, United States Treasury and mortgage-backed securities portfolio. But if you add the rest of their book to it, their loan book, they are underwater to the tune of two Trillion,
1: but that's not the full picture because, of course, what we then come on to, David, is uh, uh, derivatives, and uh, we haven't really mentioned this in detail yet. Now, derivatives. Well, derivatives are basically. Uh, oh, derivatives are basically uh, a, a side bet on something that's real. Let's just put it that way. And there's two main categories of derivatives. The first is. Exchange traded derivatives now ex- derivatives that are ch- uh, traded on some kind of exchange uh, are, like the stock exchange, are uh, they're visible. You know what sort of size they are. You know how, who's taking part in the in the trade, uh, and you know what the likely outcome is going to be. But then you've got another type of derivatives on top of that called over the counter uh, derivatives, and these are traded uh, basically between two counterparties without ever going through an exchange. Uh, and well, you might say that it's equivalent to uh, walking up to some guy in the street and saying you want to have a bet on a horse. Uh, if you actually go to a casino or a betting shop and have your make your bets there, there are table limits, there are some rules involved. Uh, with, this, with uh, the over-the-counter derivatives, just like as if you went up to the somebody uh, that's holding a book in the middle of the street. Uh, well, basically, he makes up the rules and you agree the rules uh, and it's all pretty opaque. You don't really know the size. Uh, and so there are many, many estimates for the, this sort of quantity, uh, the, the monetary quantity of derivatives that are out there, uh, something up to the region of two quadrillion dollars. Now, of course, that's the value, the face value of these, and it all depends how those contracts uh, deal with each other as they uh, come to their uh, fruition, as it were. But just to give an idea of the exposure of the banks that people are aware of to these, uh, let's have a look at some of this. So JP Morgan Chase, uh, they have $54.3 trillion worth of derivatives on their books uh, and $3.3 trillion of assets that's 16 to 1 ratio. Goldman Sachs, 51 trillion in derivatives against 0.5 trillion in assets, that's 99 to 1 or so Uh, ratio. uh, Citibank, $46 trillion in derivatives uh, and $1.7 trillion in assets, uh, 27 to 1 ratio. Uh, Bank of America, 21.6 trillion in derivatives uh, and 2.4 trillion in assets, that's only 9 to 1 uh, what was the state of Credit Suisse? And maybe this gives us a clue why uh, this bank was considered too big to fail. So it had uh, $16.1 trillion in derivatives against uh, $0.57 trillion in assets. That was before the, the, uh, the various interventions. Um, and that was a 28 to 1 ratio. So um, David, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but Bearing in mind, so much of the derivatives market is utterly opaque. Nobody gets to see uh, who's de- doing deals with whom exactly. Uh, and we don't actually know whether in the event of a bank failure uh, and one of the dominoes collapsing, whether the other dominoes would collapse in an orderly way. Uh, the, it just it gets to the point very, very quickly where it is unsavable. Yes. And, and this, this looks
2: at the issue of risk because how does it all interact? I mean, one would have hoped that there's, there's some clever people in banks looking at the risk, but what does Silicon Valley Bank show? Even in very obvious risks, like the value of the assets they're holding going down and down and down, um, and them becoming less and less liquid, which means that the bank was ever more vulnerable to a bank run, even that risk, they couldn't foresee. So, with this massive and opaque system, um, you know, what, what sort of risks are they running? Um, it, it, and and what, does, what does central bank policy do to it? As central banks move inter- interest rates around and say, go from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, what is it triggering in the derivatives market? I mean, I have no idea. I, I, and I'm not sure if they do either.
1: No, I don't think anybody does. But let's let's bring this on screen. Then this is a, an article uh, on Seeking Alpha. Uh, is your bank safe from a Credit Swiss collapse? Uh, Credit Swiss's notional amount of derivatives is uh, fifteen trillion. Uh, Swiss francs, $16.1 trillion, which is almost 70% of the total US GDP. Yes, this is a notional amount. And after netting, it becomes much smaller. So that's assuming you can actually uh, deal with these derivatives in an orderly way, uh, that, that that number would become much smaller. Uh, but it goes on. Uh, However, the majority of these derivatives are, o- derivatives are over-the-counter contracts, which are the riskiest type of derivatives, especially in a recessionary environment, uh, when there's a high chance of a counterparty default risk. So that is that your counterparty uh, defaults on the money that they owe you. Uh, as a, high, It is highly likely that uh, Credit Suisse is among derivative counterparties of large US banks, large UK banks as well. And in a crisis scenario, CS uh, likely would not be able to meet its obligations under these OTC contracts. Uh, this would lead to major losses for US banks and eventually for the retail depositors. Bottom line, We believe derivatives exposure is one of the key risks for a bank in a volatile environment since there is a high chance of a counterparty default risk. So uh, we should not underestimate uh, just the state of not just the obvious uh, aspects of the financial system that we can see, for example, $17 billion of bond losses for uh, uh, people that were invested in Credit Suisse, uh, but actually all the worthless paper that's out there that uh, that actually is totally invisible to the majority of people. Uh, but David, let's uh, move on then to uh, money creation.
2: Interesting, if inaccurately named paper by the Bank of England. So this is this is the Bank of England coming somewhat clean on what the banking system is. Now, they they call it money creation in the modern economy. Uh, they actually mean currency creation. They're not creating money, they're creating currency. We'll maybe talk about that more than extra time. And all through this, there are bits of spin, the way they use language, what they look at, what they don't. But even though there is some manipulation in this paper, it does provide quite an interesting read. So it talks about um, how lending creates deposits, right? And they're calling this broad money. Uh, so they're saying... Um, Broad money is made up of bank deposits, essentially IOUs from commercial banks to households and companies, and currency, which is IOUs from the central bank. Of these two types, broad money, bank deposits make up almost all, 97%. And in the modern economy, those bank deposits are mostly created by the commercial banks themselves. So they go on to explain, commercial banks create money in the form of bank deposits by making new loans. When a bank makes a loan, uh, for example, someone taking out a mortgage to buy a house, it does not do so by giving them thousands of pounds worth of bank notes. Instead, it credits the bank account with a bank deposit of the same size of the mortgage. At that moment, new money is created, their emphasis. For this reason, some economists have referred to bank deposits as fountain pen money, created at the stroke of a banker's pen. Now, they then go on to explain how this works. So there's a little um, a little diagram here, and it shows that at this point, the central bank's not doing anything. Um, that uh, in terms of the commercial banks, they are adding new loans to their asset uh, pile and the new deposits become additional liabilities um, for the bank. And in terms of the customers, those new deposits are their assets and the the loan agreement is their liability. Now, uh, I would just point out at, at, at at this juncture Uh, a lot of people wonder if banks can create money out of thin air, they just imagine it into existence, which is what happens. How can they ever go bust? And of course the answer is, yeah, they're creating money, but they're not creating money which is an asset, they're creating a liability. The asset is the loan agreement. And of course if people default on the loans, the banks can indeed go bust. Uh, It then goes on to explain all of the statutory um, free market, free-ish market, and central bank constraints on what the what the commercial banks can actually do. There are a lot of constraints on what they can do. They're by no means free to operate without constraint. Um, and it then goes on. As the next diagram here shows, um, how uh, this inter- how the interaction between um, more than one bank happens. So it looks at a case of someone buying a house. They get the loan. Um, the loan becomes um, a liability for the, for the, um, uh, for the house buyer um, and he gets uh, the assets and the, the new deposits created by the bank. Subsequently, he will buy the house. The house builder will deposit the, the cash in another bank and the bank that's made the loan has to cover that. So those, that, the bank that makes the loan has their reserves depleted. Right? So that's a limit on what that bank can do. And that's why the bank needs to have other people making deposits um, in, in, into the bank to, to make up for that so that the reserves are not entirely depleted. So this is, um, this is one of the constraints as to what limits what, how much banks can, can create. Um, and, uh, the, um, and it does require banks to get... Um, to to have people deposit cash as well, but it's not as straightforward as the deposit cash becomes the loan cash. It's much more indirect than that. And the the final thing I'll cover from this this paper is they talk a little bit about how quantitative easing works, which is also very strange and obscure. So quantitative easing, um, the the, the central bank goes to non-bank actors, like pension funds, that hold government debt. They buy the government debt, but they can't buy it directly because they can't interact with uh, non-bank actors. They can only interact with banks. These bank reserves are kind of special bank-only style of currency. So what they do is there's a, res- a, a correspondent bank that, that is the bank of of the um, pension fund, uh, and the the, gov- the central bank, makes, a, uh, increases that that commercial bank's reserves, and in return, that commercial bank creates the deposits, All right? So you then end up with a situation that the central bank holds the government debt and more reserves uh, from the commercial banking system. The commercial banking system has more liabilities, right? More, more, uh, money on deposit from, in this case, the pension fund, but also more reserves. So there, so, the, so the actual money supply is expanded, but it's, it's almost neutral for the banking system. But of course, the key point there is the liabilities of the central bank, the reserves, are going up and up and up. And as interest rates have gone up, that has started to really tell. That's why the Bank of England is something like 200 billion in the red, because of the interest payments going out on those um, uh, on those liabilities on those uh, reserves, uh, compared to the very small interest rate it's getting in from the debt that it bought.
1: Okay, thanks for that. Any thoughts? Yes, but we'll save those for, for extra time. Okay. Okay. Let's move on then. And uh, well, President Xi Jinping is uh, in Moscow to meet uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, And well, the BBC was going a bit uh, nuts about that earlier on today. Uh, But let's just uh, have a look at what uh, the Chinese are saying about this. Uh, They are viewing this as a very positive development and we'll come on to whether it is in a second or not. But this is this was what they were uh, really seeing as the outcome from this meeting. They're looking for a mature and tenacious Sino-Russian relationship. Uh, which will effectively promote the unity, development, and prosperity of the Eurasian continent, bring together forces to jointly safeguard the norms of international relations, And strengthen mutually beneficial cooperation, inject strong positive energy into the complicated international situation and make new contributions to building a community with a shared future for mankind. Now, that's uh, what they are certainly saying about this meeting uh, today, but uh, the West not so happy about it, as we'll hear in a second. Uh, Now, of course, uh, the Chinese have already brokered a peace deal in recent weeks. Uh, as we mentioned a couple of days ago, with uh, uh, Russia, with uh, uh, Iran, and uh, thank you, uh, with Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, and that's quite incredible. But also, lots of other stuff going on in the background here. Uh, so uh, let's just bring uh, President Assad on. He was visiting uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, over the weekend, um, and uh, so this again with all this Russian and uh, Chinese influence in the background. Uh, has allowed this to happen. So we seem to be seeing a restructuring of relationships within the Middle East, uh, Syria being being brought back on stream and so on. But in the meantime, China uh, continuing to offer uh, to uh, try to negotiate some kind of peace in Ukraine. Uh, This is not going down so well in the United States. Um, So let's just uh, bring this little clip on screen.
4: Uh, That if coming out of this meeting. There's some sort of call for a ceasefire. Well, that's just going to be unacceptable because all that's going to do, Mike, is ratify Russia's conquest to date. All that's going to do is give Mr. Putin more time to refit, retrain, reman, uh, and try to, uh, to to plan for, for renewed offensives at a time of his choosing. Uh, we hope, and we've said this before, that, Mr- that President Xi will call and talk to President Zelensky because we believe the Chinese need to get the
1: Ukrainian perspective here. Mm-hmm. So that was John Kirby, the National Security Advisor, clearly deeply unhappy uh, of any potential uh, fo- meeting with uh, between she and and uh, Putin, resulting in some kind of effort towards peace. That would be the last thing we want, Brian. Uh, well, we certainly,
0: <laughs> yeah, we certainly don't want peace because the money is all in the uh, war. Let's remember at the end of the day that the war in Ukraine or any other war doesn't take place without the. Bankers and the arms industry getting a big cut, but um, I was fascinated by two articles for the BBC today Um, I read one after the other. I went back to the first one. I read the second one again And I thought, my goodness, we've got the BBC literally falling apart here because what you can see, or I believe you can see in the two articles, is pure cognitive dissonance by the BBC reporters. So this is the first article, two decades on how the UK-US-led invasion turbocharged Iraq into chaos. Well, when you get into the article, it's not talking about chaos. It's talking about rape murder. Torture, genocide, but uh, okay, we'll go with the headline. And the second one was this one um, the uh, Z Putin meeting, what to expect from China Russia talks. So let's go back to the first one, which uh, was written by BBC journalist Jeremy Bowen. And these are some of the comments from the article. By the time IS rampaged through Iraq in the summer of 2014, the U.S. and the U.K. had ended their occupation. Jihadist ideology existed long before the invasion and had inspired the 9-11 attacks. And I'm just going to put a label on here. So basically, the U.S. and the U.K. leave Iraq destroyed and in the hands of rape, torture and genocide. He went on, he said, it's a grim irony that the invasion has dropped out of political and public debate in the U.S., which conceived and led it, and in the U.K., its closest ally in the coalition. The Americans and British bear a heavy responsibility for what happened after the invasion, and its consequences also affect them. So we'll put in the label the U.S. and U.K. share responsibility for what happened in Iraq after the invasion. Here we go with the next one, Iraq's Iraq's tyrant Saddam Hussein was well worth overthrowing. He had imprisoned and killed thousands of Iraqis, even using chemical weapons against rebellious Kurds. The problem was how it was done, the way the U.S. and the U.K. ignored international law. This is an amazing piece by a BBC journalist. We'll read that again. The problem was how it was done, the way the U.S. and U.K. ignored international law and the violence that gripped iraq after the bush administration failed to make a plan to fill the power vacuum created by the regime change regime change which of course the us and the british had um, constructed and achieved so here we are the us and uk ignored international law 12 years later by 2003 america's rage and arrogance of power blinded the second president bush to the realities that had constrained his father when the US and UK could not persuade the UN Security Council to pass a resolution explicitly authorizing invasion and regime change. Mrs. Mrs Bush and Blair claimed earlier resolutions gave them the authority they needed. So let's put in our label America's rage and arrogance of power was unleashed. They gave themselves their own power and here among. Many who did not buy their argument was the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan in a BBC interview 18 months after the invasion. He said it was not in conformity with the UN Charter. In other words, illegal. France and other NATO allies refused to join the invasion. Tony Blair ignored huge protests in the UK. His decision to go to war dogged the rest of his political career so we're going to label that that the us and the uk criminally broke international law and i think this article has set it out very clearly so we're going to say unusually well done jeremy bowen so let's come in and have a look at uh, what the bbc has to say when it's russia and china and here's the journalist steve rosenberg so putin's looking for allies and trying to make russia part of a common fortress with china as well as, as well as with India and some parts of Latin America and Africa, Putin is building his anti-Western world. So the US and the UK can do as they please to build the Western world, but Russia and China cannot. He goes on, war has become the organizing principle of Russian domestic politics, foreign policy and economic policy. There is an obsession with destroying Uh, Ukraine. Now, the quote is actually coming from Alex uh, Muratov here, but uh, the point is it's in Rosenberg's article. So the US and UK can wage war as they please, but Russia and China cannot. Uh, President Xi once called President Putin his best friend. The two have much in common. They're both authoritarian leaders. And both embrace the idea of a multi, multi sorry, a multipolar world, devoid of U.S. domination. So what we're saying is that U.S. domination of the world is good, uh, but a Russian Chinese multipolar world is bad. Uh, so just to clarify, that's what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. So if we look at those two articles together, quite incredible cognitive dissonance by the BBC that now the truth is really doing some damage in this despicable propaganda machine because their own journalists are now showing that they can't really keep tabs on what's reality. So I'll leave leave our viewers to think about this, but I thought the article on Iraq particularly good. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK column does,
1: you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out and uh, we will uh, be uh discussing this in a bit more detail in extra uh, to begin with um, then if you'd like to pick something up in uh, at the uk column shop uh, then please do Uh, but in any case do share uh, any material you
0: find on the various platforms okay well a quick um, uh, plug for the uk column here this was um, a twitter exchange um, so a Dr. Simon Godek was saying these people have been right since the beginning. The struggle against the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution over the past three years has been exhausting. What's over, often overlooked is that we started as a small group of resistance fighters. And uh, underneath, um, somebody has said UK column deserve full recognition for their accurate coverage from the start. And B lady says completely agree and um uh, thank you very much for the person who sent this through but it's obvious if we look across quite a lot of social media now people are picking up on the uk column so that's very positive right let's uh, just do a little bit of an overview of what's happening in uh, ukraine and of course there's been a, an escalation in the fighting across all of the fronts over the weekend i'll take you through this as quickly as i can But I would like to say, once again, I could only do this due to the good work of many other uh, researchers who are kind enough to post their work on social media. So um, a a story which is out there is that there have been Ukrainian attacks over the weekend. They have occurred mainly on the southern sector, Zaporozhia Front. And if we really analyze these, these are reconnaissance miss- missions uh, with a few armored vehicles, two or three, and a few relatively small number of troops that are attacking along the line to probe the uh, Russian positions. So we can't say that this is a full-scale attack. These are probing attacks that the Ukrainians are being carried out in a variety of places. But of course, Zelensky has told the world that there will be a ukrainian offensive um, to try and push through to mariupol and retake the crimea this will be interesting to watch Uh, rybar is a pro-russian source but put out a very good uh, update on what was happening so it's talking about ukrainian air assaults uh, being reinforced and repulsed i'll leave people to freeze the screen to have a look at these um they're talking about armored vehicles from the uh ukrainians uh trying to be highly mobile on the battlefield but this is very difficult because it's still very muddy but it's very clear that there have been a number of these attacks to test the russian defenses and you can read about it here and uh, ultimately rybar says the ukrainian command is preparing for a large-scale offensive Regular, essentially suicidal attacks are aimed at assessing the state of Russian defenses and adjusting the overall offensive plan in the Zaporozhye region. And this is really the meat of it, because the movement of small numbers of troops uh, are invariably resulting in those troops being killed, usually by shelling by the Russians. But uh, in bigger areas of the front uh, of Defka, we've, mo- we've mentioned before, this is another fortified city which the Russians have encircled. And uh, a report here from Il Russo. This is pro-Russian, but he's been quite accurate. He's now saying that Russian forces are entering the southwestern sector of the city itself. But this report is unconfirmed at the moment. In bakhmut Um, Bakhmud is encircled. The one remaining road is is virtually impossible. But what was interesting by this analysis by Weeb Union is that the the bordered areas that you can see around Bakhmud City show the small sections that the Russians forces take at a time. They're not storming the city in one go they are eating their way into it and they're doing this because it reduces russian casualties and increases ukrainian casualties by the shelling these two videos give us a, uh, an idea of the state of the roads i don't know where these two tanks are stuck in the in the mud but i suspect it is the Bakhmut area. Uh, but if you look at it, you can see the reason why the Ukrainians are in dire straits, uh, because if it is an unmetalled road, it's virtually impassable. And uh, these tanks can't even uh, pull one of their own out. If I go to this video, um, I, am, I believe that this is the sole remaining escape road from Backwood. It's littered with destroyed vehicles because I beg your pardon for that, because even that road is under fire control by the Russians. This is the reality in Bakhmud, and in the southwest of, this, uh, south, southwest of the city, and in the north, the Russian forces are closing the pincer movement. And uh, in this report by Defense Politics Asia, you can see that the Russians are using this pincer movement tactic, tactically in the city as well as outside the city. So if we put a bit more meat on that, this uh, map shows the sheer scale of the Russian uh, territory around Bakhmud. Um, so Bakhmud is now being swallowed into Russian-held territory. Uh, but what's happening is the Russians are pushing these pincers in uh, in the position of the red arrows, but they're also now aiming for these fortified cities, uh, fortified urban areas of Chasivyar and Ivaniska and uh, the reality is that the russians will take these so we wait to see how how long uh, because the objective is always to go slow to kill the to kill the ukrainians by shell fire and i'll just leave the subject by the fact that uh, the bbc gloating that uh, poland and slovakia have pledged a handful of mig 29s to ukraine Uh, but the reality is that ukraine's got no viable air force left it has no viable air defense Uh, any air base anywhere in ukraine can be hit by russian missiles while russia has a powerful combat experienced air force the strongest air defense systems in the world and an eye-watering electronic warfare capability so there's no doubt that those planes are going to be destroyed and, um, and we should just mention of
1: course that was ben wallace's idea he was determined that anybody within nato that still had uh uh mig aircraft uh, should donate those to uh ukraine
0: yes and of course there will be no um f-16s going because the f-16 is a very delicate aircraft it can't operate from forward air bases and of course, the Americans are desperately worried that they will be shot down, and that would be another blow to the uh, US defence industry, which I think is highly likely. So I think 13 MiG 29s have been mentioned. They will be destroyed and will achieve nothing. Well, let's change the subject a little bit and uh, have a look at an email which came in. Uh, this is back on the subject of health, but somebody had kindly got in touch with their local MP and uh, they'd kept the UK column informed. So I'm going to say a big thank you to that. And uh, This is just the uh, email showing you that what's about to come up on the screen uh, is correct. And the meat of it is this uh, reply from Maria Caulfield MP. And let's just have a look at uh, what's being said here. Thank you for your correspondence of 7th of December. The benefits of the vaccines in preventing COVID-19 and serious complications far outweigh any currently known side effects in the majority of of patients. It goes on all vaccines and medicines have some side effects that need to be balanced against the expected benefits from preventing illness following widespread use of the COVID-19 vaccines. The vast majority of suspected adverse reactions confirm the safety profile seen in clinical trials. I won't read any more because uh, we, we need to make up a bit of time, but essentially this is the standard report by an MP. You can see the signature. Uh, let's come on to the reality, mic, which must surely be Andrew Bridgen uh, trying to speak to his colleagues in the House of Commons.
1: Yes, indeed. So Andrew Bridgen speaking in the House of Commons last week. Now, this first uh, little clip here, um, is just to to let people see what happened when he started speaking so let's have a listen to this
4: Andrew Bridgen Mr Deputy Speaker on the 13th of December last year I was kindly granted an adjournment debate on the potential harms that emergency use experimental mRNA COVID-19 vaccines cause it's fair to say that night my life changed during that speech in, uh, in the evidence data I presented to the House, which no one has effectively rebutted, I highlighted to the Minister the scale of harms that the experimental vaccines have caused and continue to cause. In giving that speech to an almost empty chamber on this most important of issues—quite literally life and death—two things happened to me immediately. First, I was counselled by the mainstream media. Despite sending a data sheet in the wake of the debate, scientifically evidencing every point that I made, not one media organisation wanted to talk about the issue of serious harms or death occurring as a result of the mRNA vaccines. Mr Deputy Speaker, I fully expect that they will show the same level of disinterest in today's debate. It's what we've come to expect from the media more interested in naval gazing at the pontifications of Britain's foremost football pundit instead of the horror and tragedy of excess deaths taking place before their very eyes.
1: Well the disgraceful part of that was it wasn't just the mainstream media that deserves criticism for this. it's his fellow MP. so let's just look at the House of Commons uh, as he was speaking. and as you can see, there's no one there. now why was there no one there? Well, you may have noticed at the beginning of that video clip, one MP running around uh, the Commons, uh, getting uh, assuring everybody out effectively. And that was uh, this man, uh, Andrew Mitchell, uh, who of course is the uh, Minister for International Development. uh, But he decided that nobody that was sitting in that chamber uh, should really be listening to Andrew Bridgen uh, and encouraged everybody to leave. So anyway, with that, let's listen to a little bit more of Andrew Bridgen's comments.
4: Mr Deputy Speaker, we have looked at the health implications of the vaccine programme. Now I want to look at some of the costs implications of the booster programme in the UK. Total funding of the COVID-19 vaccination programme in the UK up to the end of March this year is budgeted at £8.3 billion. In February 2022, the GP online website, Championing General Practice Professionals, published that GPs and community pharmacies were being paid £24 per dose for administering vaccines. That figure increased to £34 per dose at dedicated vaccine centres. These costs of course do not include the cost of the experimental uh, vaccines themselves. For ease of calculation I will count those at £20 per dose across the board. I will be generous and use the lower of the two figures for administering the vaccine giving a total cost of £44 per dose. But even then, I do, we see from the government's own data using boosters it cost over 1.9 million pounds to prevent just one hospitalisation among healthy 50 to 59 year olds and over 11 million pounds to prevent one serious hospitalisation due to COVID-19 in this age group the cost to the taxpayer of preventing a hospitalisation of one healthy 40 to 49 year old is over four million pounds using boosters and for healthy 30 to 39 year olds uh, the cost of preventing Just one hospitalisation is over £9 million, Mr Deputy Speaker. Of course, to prevent serious hospitalisation in all these groups, the cost is far, far higher. It is, of course, worth noting that in setting up the vaccine programme, the government indemnified vaccine manufacturers, which gave them total cover against all future claims of the adverse effects of their products. Given what I've already explained about the incidence of serious side effects, that cost may well be extremely significant to the taxpayer, on top of the obvious human tragedy and loss, which is self-evidently happening.
1: Now, uh, there's, he said lot, lots more during that presentation, and uh, if you have a look on Andrew Bridgen's Twitter feed, you'll find links to the video, but somewhere you will not find the video is on YouTube, uh, because no sooner had he put uh, his speech up on YouTube, Then it was removed by YouTube for violating YouTube's community guidelines. So Andrew Bridgen uh, tweeted this out saying, YouTube have taken down the speech I gave in parliament today. Uh, I am an elected member of the UK parliament. The speech was given in the chamber of the House of Commons and responded to by a government minister. What chance has anyone else got of putting their views on YouTube? Uh, I think uh, that is absolutely uh, not surprising, but absolutely disgraceful. And if anybody is any doubt that there are problems with democracy in this country and in the world Uh, i think that is another example
0: of it all right i just wanted to add to that and for viewers and listeners think about what we've just seen we've seen uh, an empty uh, chamber there in the house of commons and the few people who were there were clearly encouraged to leave So the debate, the truth, the facts were stripped out of the House of Commons. And then in collusion with that, YouTube also refuses to put up a debate that occurred in Parliament. Every MP in the country should be outraged that YouTube is censoring debates in the British Parliament. But of course, neither is happening. So we can see in front of us a conspiracy by MPs to deceive members of the public over the damage that people have suffered as a result of, I'm going to say, dangerous vaccine jabs. Uh, David, have you any thoughts?
2: Yes, they can't go. They can't attend that. They can't listen to him because their entire position is, we didn't know. Right Now, if they sit there and listen to Andrew Bridgen they cannot say that. They have to admit they saw the evidence, they heard the evidence. So they're running. It's not just that they are censoring them or, or, or shunning them. They are running because their justification for the entire position is we didn't know. Now, they know enough to leave. So I don't think that one flies.
1: Well, indeed. Uh, okay, well, let's move on uh, very quickly. David to Scotland.
2: Yes, um, on the subject of democracy in crisis, um, we've got the SNP election now. We're going back. It seems like a lifetime. It's actually only the 12th of February this year. The Daily Record reports crisis for Nicola Sturgeon as 30,000 quit the SNP over her gender reform um, and f 2 policies, right? So the Daily Record reports that basically due to the gender recognition reform bill, Um, and the whole issue regarding putting male rapists in women's prisons, um, the uh, membership of the SNP has plummeted by 30,000. Okay, that was the claim. So it was then answered by the national newspaper, SNP supporting um, uh, fanzine, and it says the SNP reject report 30,000 have quit party over Nicola Sturgeon gender reform. The, the SNP have said it's wholly inaccurate. Denying the claim, uh, the SNP told the National, the figure is wrong by about 30,000. So they say no one's leaving. Okay. So, and this was reinforced by the uh, spokesman, the, the press spokesman for the SNP, uh, Mr. Murray Foote, right? who tweeted that, that article out and said, this is all about the original drivel. You can hear the condescension and and, and disgust dripping from his pen here. The 30,000 figure that that reported, it's not just flat wrong, it's wrong by about 30,000. Hashtag tartan ball. he says, I don't know what he means there. Now, then Nicola Sturgeon resigned and there started to be uh, an election campaign and um, there was a problem with the election campaign because the electorate was somewhat, shall we say, obscure, uh, secret even. And there was a, a concern on behalf of two of the, the candidates um, that, uh, that the election may not be above board. So they wrote a joint letter, Ash Reagan and uh, Kate Forbes wrote a joint letter to Peter Murrow, chief executive of the SNP. And they said, basically, we ask you to disclose the following information to all campaign teams. The total number of paid up members currently within the SNP, the number of digital voting papers that have been sent out to members, the number of physical postal voting papers that have been issued. Right, so you can see they're a little bit concerned because, well, as the Herald here reports, the SNP race sliding into paranoia and mistrust amid vote rigging row. They were concerned that former party members or indeed deceased party members might be voting disproportionately for Hamza Youssef. This was the concern and it was backed up with enough determination that I think they were going to take the whole whole SNP organisation to court if they didn't release the figures. So they did release the figures and to be fair, the number of people who left the SNP wasn't 30,000, no. No, it was 32,000. So here we have the Herald reporting, SNP loses 32,000 members in less than 14 months. 2,300 people quitting every month. They had 120,691 at one point, and they're now down to 72,186. Now, this obviously put SNP spokesman Murray Foote in an impossible position. So he tweeted out, acting in good faith, as a courtesy to colleagues at Party HQ, that's code for Peter Morrow, I issued agreed party responses to media inquiries regarding membership. It has subsequently become apparent that there are serious issues with these responses, as in outright lies. Um, consequently, I concluded this created a serious impediment to my role, and I resigned my position within the SNP group at Holyrood. So, one of many resignations, we might t- discuss the others in extra time. So, he felt he had no position, nowhere to go other than to resign. Um, this then got, uh, uh, the, this then raised the question, well, if he was lied to by people at SMP HQ, that means Peter Morrow, what's his position in this? So he was then called on to uh, set an exit date or face a vote of no confidence. And the National here again says, one senior member of the National Executive Committee told the Herald, we have the numbers, there's not a hope in hell that Peter can survive a no confidence motion. So faced with a certain defeat in the no-confidence motion, uh, Peter Murrell decided to call it a day and um, resigned. Now, he's been organising the entire election. Um, there's huge concerns over the legitimacy, the reliability of the election. So there are now calls for the entire election to be stopped and restarted um, with a more um, stable and less corrupt uh, organisation running it. If they can indeed find one, so that's this week in the SNP. Next week, who knows?
1: Yeah, but David, uh, of course, part of the problem here is that uh, the closeness of of uh, the SNP establishment to the Clinton family. Uh, I appreciate it's a bit, it's not a direct relationship, but but perhaps they're getting some inspiration from uh, from democratic uh, voting practices in the United States.
2: Uh, that is a fair comment. It does. It's a little um, uh going. Is that the word?
1: Quite, po- quite possibly, Mark.
3: Oh, <laughs> anybody that touches the Clintons gets soiled. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on, Mark, then to uh, the disunited kingdom.
3: Yeah, this is an interesting thing. I keep a close eye, of course, on the major think tanks. The Council on Foreign Relations, excuse me, is no exception. How could it be? It turned uh, uh, 100 years old a couple of years ago. Anyway, they came out with this heavyweight article that came out swinging Disunited Kingdom, Will Nationalism Break Britain? It's written by Fenton O'Toole. He's the Milberg Professor of Irish Letters of Princeton University in New Jersey. And uh, this is a relatively brief report. It invites a lot of conversation. We'll move on to the next slide. Uh, this is uh, another uh, title of it, The United Kingdom's Existential Crisis. Um, and we'll move on from there. Uh, this is just a little sampling. There may be no better example of how domestic dysfunction can hobble global power than the United Kingdom in recent years. You'll notice right away that Global power is the most important thing, and domesticity, you might say, is secondary and takes a back seat. All that matters is global power. Anyway, constant political and economic turmoil has reinforced the sense that this once great power, Great Britain, is in terminal decline. Brexit, the United Kingdom's decision to leave the EU in 2016, put the UK as a whole at odds with Scotland and Northern Ireland, where large majorities voted to stay in Europe. Although Brexit is clearly to blame for many of the United Kingdom's recent problems, the forces undermining Great Britain's stability started taking shape long ago. Moving on. In a new piece for Foreign Affairs, Irish writer Fintan O'Toole argues that English nationalism, which was previously buried under British and imperial identities, quote-unquote, is one of the driving forces pulling the uk apart today the country is quote unsure about not just its place in the international order there's that sacred order again but also whether it can continue to be regarded even as a single place we discuss how brexit brexit excuse me brexit continues to haunt british politics the future of the Scottish independence movement, there's one for David to think about, and how national identity is formed and expressed. And I read through Mr. O'Toole's entire article, which was a pretty good cure for insomnia, but basically what he's saying, and I summed it up in some notes, without the EU, what can the UK thrive on? What can it identify itself with? According to this author, Neither king, nor queen, nor Protestant Christianity, nor industry, nor unionism. Uh, None of that can enliven or give meaningful uh, identity to the UK, to Great Britain. The nationalists in Britain ruined it all by approving Brexit, even though pro-EU voters in Scotland and Wales largely favored staying in the EU. Now Scotland and Wales instead want to leave the UK. They're going more nationalistic, he says but they want to stay in the EU, even though they want to leave the UK. Meanwhile, New Zealand and Australia are looking at Republican movements. They don't necessarily want a royal head of state, uh, but Britain and the UK joint, uh, but, but it could not be, it couldn't be that Britain joining the European economic community in 1973, 50 years ago, uh, that couldn't possibly be the problem, joining the EU in the first place. The only The only explanation for all of this, according to the CFR, is that uh, many in Britain are being nationalistic, they approve Brexit, they're the one and only problem, and the sacred international order is crumbling as a result. So this is a real conversation starter. I don't pretend to be an expert in it, but uh, it's a typical CFR uh, shot over the bow against nationalism. Not that all nationalistic movements are created equal, not that they're all perfect, not that they don't have errors and mistakes and misguided people. They do. But... Does that trump the damage done to the UK when it joined the EU in the first place 50 years ago? What What are your thoughts, guys?
1: Well, just very briefly. I mean, his 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 argument is internally inconsistent because he's not talking about British nationalism. He's not complaining about British nationalism. He's complaining about English nationalism. English nationalism is bad. Scottish nationalism, Welsh nationalism are these are good. Uh, because they're not nationalist movements at all. they're international move, inter, internationalist movements. And the other thing I would the other thing I would point out is, of course, if we look at Ireland, uh, their nationalist movement uh, is internationalist as well. So it's viewed as good uh, in the uh, in the broader picture, uh, not by uh, English nationalists, of course. So it's only it's actually what any time he is accusing British nationalists of being the problem. It's English nationalists is what he's really talking about.
0: Yeah, I would just say, uh, Mark, we need to book a couple of hours to talk about this properly. But what comes into my mind, of course, the EU's policy of regionalization, which was, in fact, the vehicle that helped spawn devolution and uh, that was the deliberate effort of the eu project to break apart the united kingdom and it's very easy to follow this trail through of course they tried desperately to do the same with cornwall and uh, they had uh, cornwall involved with a very pernicious little european organization called fuen and uh, that had its origins in the nazi uh, Nazi agenda to keep control over occupied countries in in Europe by pitting one against the other. So my goodness, we could have a tremendous talk. But yeah, it's typical foreign policy propaganda, I think.
1: Okay, let's move on. Good news, good news, everyone. The UK now has its emergency alert system up and running, up and ready for uh, for operation, uh, and we're all going to be subject if we have an appropriate phone. Uh, to uh, an emergency alert uh, demonstration on the 23rd of April 2023. Uh, This is fantastic stuff. Our new way to alert you when your life may be in danger. So don't be afraid because the government's there to make sure you're afraid uh, by alerting you to uh, an existential uh, crisis to your own life. Uh, But you're going to be the first to know. So let's get on with it. Now, Many people haven't uh, heard the emergency alert, so the government has rather helpfully uh, produced a little bit of video for this. So so let's see what is likely to happen to your phone uh, on this uh, date in April. There you go. That should be very impressive to everybody. Uh, now let's just look and see what the, what they uh, they announced uh, on their page. Here, here is the page uh, and it says how emergency alerts work. Uh, emergency alerts work on iPhones running iOS uh, 14.5 or later, Android phones and tablets running Android 11 or later. So if you uh, have uh, phones which are well out of date, uh, hopefully you won't be receiving this nonsense. Uh, if you have an earlier version of Android, however, you may need to still have a look and make sure that uh, your alerts are switched off. If you do want to opt out, uh, you can opt out of emergency alerts, but you should keep them switched on for your own safety because it's all about your own safety. Don't worry about anything. You're going to be kept safe by the sure. government, which is going to send you out an emergency alert and tell you exactly what to do under all circumstances. Uh, but the instructions for switching this uh, nonsense off are on screen at the moment.
0: So you could be driving your car somewhere in an urban area, paying attention to the traffic, paying attention to cyclists or pedestrians, and you get this alert going off. Yes, but don't pick up your phone in the car. Because... Oh, no, no, but you don't need to touch the phone and do something unlawful. The government is going to break your concentration and then you you wipe out the cyclist. I think this this could be quite interesting. I'd really like to send the government a bill back. They can alert me via my phone, but I think possibly a thousand pounds would be a reasonable price for for them to use a system which belongs to me and I've paid for. Yes, okay, Uh, let's let's move on to this then, Brian. Well, I had to mention this. um, The Guardian here, the Met Police on the last chances, the Casey report, Uh, this is from Lady Casey, is to condemn a failure to change. Uh, Apparently, the Met Police is riddled with deep-seated racism, sexism, and homophobia and has failed to change despite numerous official views urging it to do so. An official report will say, now I will say that, of course, the Met Police is riddled with deep-seated racism, sexism, and homophobia, uh, because it was infiltrated from the inside common purpose was one of those vehicles which seeded it with a woke agenda which destroyed the way it operated uh, but if we go back a bit this is the lady herself a wonderful photo Meta points, white troubleshooter uh, louise casey to wipe out misogyny and uh, she was appointed by crusader dick at that time Common purpose. But yeah, but of course, Christina Dick was herself a common purpose guru who brought common help bring common purpose into the Met and uh, common purpose clearly was one of the vehicles which, which caused huge friction in the Met police as it did in other police forces. Um, So this is a fascinating little story. Um, but if we look at uh, what the lady says about herself, she says the Daily Mail don't like me cause i'm female and fat and lefty other people on the left think i sleep with the devil so this looks like a mature mindset to go investigating the met police Uh, we recognize the grave levels of public concern following the kidnap rape and murder of sarah everard and other deeply troubling incidents and allegations I've said that we know a precious bond has been broken. Trust is given to the police by our, the public's consent. So any acts that undermine that trust must be examined and fundamentally changed. I'm going to predict that in the report, which I've not yet read, she will not have investigated what common purpose did inside the police forces across UK. Um, she said this will no doubt be a difficult task, but we owe it to the victims and families this has affected and the countless decent police officers this has brought into disrepute. So very interesting lady here. She's got a sort of social work background, but she was uh, director, deputy director of shelter in 1992, head of the rough sleepers unit 1999. And uh, I was slightly amused to see that um after she'd been the head of the Rough Sleepers Unit and uh, she'd been there uh, appointed as chair of the Rough Sleeping Task Force in July 2020, she was nominated for a cross bench peerage. Uh, I get a vision of her laid out on the benches sleeping. That's uh, not to uh, uh, make light of rough sleepers, but uh, this is a social woman who's now been brought forward in order to look at what's going on in the police. And I think a lot of questions need to be asked about who she really is, what her agenda is, uh, but we'll wait to see what's in the report.
1: Um, David, we're a little over time here, but maybe we'll just end with a video.
0: Yes, yeah, so this
2: is one of, um, of, of, of many videos by an, a, a Twitter account, youtube called clown medical uh, and we've covered several in the past i don't think i've ever seen a response on twitter quite like the one this has got um, people coming back with their own personal experiences um, the song itself in a satirical manner t- tackles a very dark and very difficult subject but the response it's got uh has been uh, warm and uh, a lot of people have been very grateful that they've raised the issue of how our elderly people have been treated in the past three and more years. Um, so uh, I think this is excellent work by Coin Medical, and I thank them. I thank them for it uh, from the bottom of my heart. Give
5: them- Give them a dose that would make a blue whale sick. The results will be more than catastrophic. Give them the old morphine combo. Hush and disable them. How can they breathe when they've just been euthanized? All of these old folks in us they trusted. Oh, how their family should be disgusted. They got midazolamed and departed this life. Give them the old propaganda scare and panic them. Give them the poisonous BBC The daily dose of Deaths and people sick Give them the old Window visits Confuse and them Make it a constant Battle to survive And if they dare kick up A fuss then Roll the medication cart Around again And bedazzle them Accelerate their demise I sure hope the general public Don't start asking questions About their loved ones' medical records About midazolam and morphine combinations And dosages used, etc That would be a disaster Give the old nil by mouth trick Starving them Treat them with coffee Diuretic I drink them just that extra little bit <laughs> and see you just medazzle them you just medazzle them you just medazzle them and the magic was
1: what do we say about that
0: well i i of course um, clowns are supposed to be funny, but the story, then the rating is a very, very serious one. And many people have suffered unbelievable emotional trauma as to what's happened with their relations as a result. So I think there's a strange mix in that, that, um, yeah. It, yeah. It's hard. <laughs> it's today. hard. Yeah. Yes.
1: Okay. Well, look, uh, we need to leave it there for today.
0: Okay. We will be back shortly for extra time. And, uh, how many minutes there's a few people have asked how long we're likely to be shall we say five minutes yeah we'll say five minutes we will see you an extra time in five minutes time thank you very much for joining us for today's uk golem news thank you bye-bye